This morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 2. Let me invite you to turn there. Colossians chapter 2. The letter of Colossians is a letter to a church who is in danger of falling away. The false teachers have led the congregation to question whether Christ is sufficient on his own to provide initial and ongoing and final salvation for them. The false teachers have craftily convinced them that they need more than Christ. That they need man-made laws. They need Jewish regulations. They need more than Christ. So Paul writes to counteract the work of the false teachers. They're saying that that the, the congregation needs more than Christ. Paul is certainly not saying that they need less than Christ, but rather that all they need is Christ. Because Christ is supreme in creation. And Christ is supreme in redemption. And from beginning to middle to the end of our salvation, we need Christ. And as Corey played earlier, Christ alone. In Colossians 2, Paul acknowledges his concern for their spiritual well-being because of this real danger of the deceiving teachers that are leading them away from the faith. And so this morning we'll see that like the Colossian Colossian church, we also need to have a firm foundation, which is Christ, and then to build on that foundation with the strength that God supplies. Colossians chapter 2. Let's read the text together. I'll read beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Believers must be grounded in the truth. There is a real danger of being deceived. And so we must be grounded in the truth. And that's, I think, what Paul wants the Colossians to understand and what the Holy Spirit wants us to see and be reminded of today. That that, that believers must be grounded in the truth because of this real danger of being deceived. So Paul begins with this spiritual concern for vulnerable believers in verses 1 through 3. A spiritual concern for vulnerable believers believers. He wants them to know the value of a godly leader. One of the values of a godly spiritual leader is that he will struggle with you in the progress of the gospel. Notice that word that he uses there in verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. 
Paul wants them to know that, that he is with them. That he is concerned about their spiritual well-being. And so he's going to give himself to struggling with them. The word struggle in verse 1 is the same root word that we saw in chapter 1, verse 29. It means to agonize. It's, the, it's from the Greek word agon, which is where we get our word agonize. He's going to struggle along with them, agonize with them in the work of the gospel, in, in pursuing godliness, in fighting off the, the enemies of God, which are primarily spiritual, right? Paul is saying, listen, I tirelessly labor for the progress of the gospel. I am agonizing with you on your behalf. And I think primarily what he's talking about is with them in prayer. He's already shown how much he prays for them. That every time I think about you, I pray for you. And I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so I think he's struggling with them. Uh, he, He can't struggle with them there. He's not there. He's in prison. So he's struggling with them in prayer. He finds out about their troubles and he he prays along with them and for them. And notice the beneficiaries. There's three beneficiaries of Paul's Paul's prayers. The second part of verse 1. For how great a struggle I have on your behalf. That's the first group, Colossians. And then for those who are at Laodicea, And then thirdly, for all those who have not personally seen my face. So first, the Colossians. I pray on your behalf or I struggle with you on your behalf. And then the Laodiceans. Laodicea was a city nine miles to the west of Colossae. And these two churches were kind of like sister churches. They're probably two of the closest in proximity of any church in the, in the, um, the early period of the church, the first century. But they had a close relationship because in chapter 4, verse 16, we get there, we'll see that Paul tells the Colossians, make sure that this letter goes on to the Laodiceans and that you read the letter that I sent to them. So you guys swap letters and read them because you'll be mutually encouraged as you see what I have to say to each church. And this church in Laodicea that Paul is struggling with and knows that they'll eventually read this letter is the same church that Jesus uh, challenges in Revelation chapter 3. Remember, he, he has these seven churches and he says, I'm among you. you know, I, I'm this golden lampstand among you and if, if you don't live for me, I'll snuff out the, the, the lampstand. I'll, I'll stuff out, snuff out the lamp. And Jesus addresses them, suggesting that they were a significant church within uh, the early part of, of um, church history. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm struggling with you, Colossians. I'm struggling with the Laodiceans as well. And then notice this third group here at the end of verse 1, and those who have not personally seen my face. It's probably referring to other believers in the area that are not part of either one of these congregations, maybe Hierapolis, which is not too far away. Paul addresses them in chapter 4, verse 13. But the point is that Paul is struggling with them or for them. That he, he has a spiritual concern for their well-being. And the goals of his concern are found in verses 2 and 3. First, encouragement. That their hearts may be encouraged. And the reality of false teaching and spiritual threats is that it often has the effect of discouragement and distress, doesn't it? I mean, you, you certainly have been 
affected by spiritual discouragement. And so what you need is other believers to come along and not only pray for you, but also encourage you in the faith. And that's what Paul does here for these believers. That they, He prays, he struggles with them so that they will be encouraged. Secondly, their union. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, verse 2, and then having been knit together in love. Another reality of the spiritual threats that come is that they often create division. In fact, especially when they come from within the church, they create division in the church. And so what Paul is praying for is that they would be united together, not set, not uh, fighting against one another, but united together in love, in truth. I mean, when problems arise in the church, by nature, we turn and attack one another. We, 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 we have strife and war because of the conflicts that are in our souls, James 4 says. And so we, we fight and we war. And that's the exact opposite of what the Spirit is working to do within us. He is working to unite us. And so we have a responsibility to be complicit with Him, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the, the work that the Spirit's doing to unite, maintain that. Don't set, don't, don't set yourself against what the Spirit is doing in the church. And, and even when division comes in from outside or from within inside, we need to work to unite around those who are in the truth. And so Paul's saying, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm laboring to the point of exhaustion in prayer so that you will be encouraged and so that you will be united. And then thirdly, he... he um, his goal is to see them deepened in their spiritual understanding. So encouraged, united, and deepened in their spiritual understanding. Notice how Paul describes his third goal here in verse 2. In the middle of the verse says, "...and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding." All the wealth. Paul's saying there's a great treasure that comes from having a full assurance of understanding. And, and when, so when the Scriptures talk about treasure and wealth that are promised to believers, that's when our ears ought to perk up. That's when we ought to say, okay, what is it that I need to do in order to get that spiritual wealth? And the Holy Spirit, I think, is reminding us that, that there is a great treasure in being assured of spiritual things. I mean, have you found this to be the case for yourself that when you have come to times of deep understanding of God's way, that it has encouraged you, that it has become a treasure for you? And so as we are assured in our spiritual understanding, it results, notice next, in a knowledge of God's mystery. So this is all under a deepened spiritual understanding. But, but it results in a knowledge of God's mystery. So as we come to be assured more and more of the spiritual things, we, we are confident in God's mystery. This mystery is not undiscoverable. As I've mentioned before, when we come across this word mystery in the New Testament, Paul uses it frequently. He's not talking about something that's undiscoverable, unknowable, something that's always hidden. And we know that because he says that we can have a true knowledge in it. 
I mean, why, how could we have a true knowledge in something that was unknowable? How could we have a true knowledge in something that was undiscoverable, right? So he's saying you can have a true knowledge in God's mystery. So what is this mystery? And the next line tells us at the end of verse 2, God's mystery is Christ Himself. The mystery is that Christ came to earth and died to pay the penalty for sin. The reason it's a mystery is because it was previously hidden from those in the Old Testament. They didn't know it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth who would come and die for sins. So this mystery has now been made known to us. That Christ has come in the flesh and He has sacrificially died for us and triumphantly has been resurrected from the dead. So Christians, that is at the heart of God's revelation to us. I mean, this is God's message. This is God's mystery that Christ has come to the earth to pay the penalty for sin. So if you want to know what God the Father is like, then you look at the Son. What is it that that Jesus is all about? What is it that He loves? What is it that He does? And the reason that there is great wealth in being assured of the spiritual knowledge is because the focus of our attention is on Christ. And notice what we find in Him in verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Jesus is not a lesser deity than the Father. He is not a creation of the Father. He's different from the Father, but He is God. He is still fully God. He embodies everything that the Father is in character and purpose. We already saw in chapter 1 that He is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. That He is the preeminent One in all creation. Not because He was created, but because He's the Creator and Sustainer. And so verse 3 says that, that Christ does not have access to wisdom. It's not that he has access to wisdom or you know that he's just a storehouse of wisdom or that somehow he's attained wisdom. But that he, he is wisdom. Right? In Christ is hidden all the wisdom, the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is all wise. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing is a surprise to Christ because Christ is God. this great treasure, this great mystery that Christ has come to the earth and has, been, and has been revealed to us as the source of all wisdom, this message has been now made available to us through the Gospel. And so we have this great privilege. It's, it's as if we have been given possession of the only gold mine in the world. And all we have to do is, is mine the treasure that now belongs to us in Christ. We have Christ. And our job is just to, to, to mine the treasure that's there. Paul's concern is for their encouragement. He, he has a goal for their spiritual well-being. He wants to see them encouraged, united, and deepened in their spiritual understanding. In verses 4 and 5, he gives two reasons for his spiritual concern. Two reasons for spiritual concern. Paul, why do you tirelessly struggle for the Colossians' well-being and the Laodiceans' well-being and the Hierapolians' well-being, whoever you say their name? Paul gives two reasons why he's concerned about them. First, deceitful leaders. 
And secondly, his absence, his own absence. So first, deceitful leaders. In verse 4, he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now, this is an amazing statement by Paul if you think about it. Right? Think about the people to whom Paul is speaking. What kind of people are they? They're believers, right? They're Christians. And so what Paul's saying is, I'm saying to you believers, I'm reminding you about this responsibility that you have to be rooted and grounded in Christ so that, verse 4, isn't that what the text says? No one will be deluded by persuasive argument. And so here's the truth. There is a great reality that that we must recognize that even believers can be deceived by the apparent truthfulness of heresy. Even believers can be deceived. I mean, isn't that the nature of deception? That it looks truthful, right? You've never been deceived by someone who overtly told you what harm they were going to do. A guy who's inviting you to be a part of a Ponzi scheme doesn't say, hey, the goal is for me to take $10,000 of your money and never give it back. He doesn't say that. Instead, what does he do? He cloaks his deceit in truth, doesn't he? Or at least apparent truth. He promises the hope of a huge return on your investment. He shows you some examples of people who have, who have hit it rich quick because they've done this sort of investment. We had a lady stop by our house when we lived in Lincoln Park that asked for just just need a little bit of gas. Her car was just right down the road and just needed some gas. And she'll bring our can right back. And um, and maybe she did need gas. Apparently she did because she never came back with the can. And and that's the nature of deception, isn't it? That that it's there there may be some truth mixed with it. But that's why it's believable. And we have to guard ourselves against deceit. The reason that we believe deception is because it sounds true. I mean, if a person claimed to you that they had a fire-breathing dragon in their backyard, you wouldn't believe it because it's um, it's easily falsifiable, right? It's easily to it's easy for us to go and prove that false. And the nature of false teaching is is that it doesn't come and say, hey, I've got a fire-breathing dragon in my backyard. Instead it says, hey, I've got the truth that comes from Jesus Christ. And this is what it is. You need to buy into these man-made regulations. You need to adopt these Jewish regulations in order to be right with God. You need to follow all these rules that I've set up. You see, false teaching doesn't come with the warning label. It doesn't come with a huge sign on it. You know, false teachers don't have a big sign on their chest that says false teacher. What they have to say sounds true and right and spiritual. And Paul's saying the only way that we're going to guard ourselves against those deceivers is if we ground ourselves in the truth about Christ. And that's why I'm constantly reminding you to not take my word for for truth. Take God's word for truth. 
Okay, check what I have to say against what the Scriptures have to say. Make sure that it's true. That's why the Bereans were commended by Paul. Because they checked the Scriptures daily to see if what he had to say was true. And Paul even said as much himself in Galatians 1, that if anyone comes to you with another Gospel other than the one that, I, that, that you've been handed down from the Apostles, then make sure that, that, that you recognize that, that person is to be accursed. Even if it comes from an angel. So, so we have the very real possibility of being deceived. And Paul's saying, I'm writing to you so that you will not be deceived, so that you're not deluded by persuasive argument. So that was the first reason for his concern. The second reason for his concern was the absence of a spiritual leader. In his case, he was absent. Right? Where's Paul right now? He's in prison in Rome. He's far away from them, and he doesn't have the ability to immediately, in other words, in person, help, him, help them. And yet, what does he say in verse 5? Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline. Paul's saying, physically I can't be with you. I would love to be there to encourage you and to, and to see you grow in unity and, and deepen in your spiritual understanding, but I can't be there. Spiritually, uh, in spirit, okay, not, not capital S, there, but, but in spirit, I'm there. In other words, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying with you. I, I'm, I'm reflecting on what's going on there. Paul's concerned about them because of the deceitful leaders and because he's absent. And so what's the antidote? How do, we, how do we avoid being deceived? What happens when our spiritual leader dies or moves on? What, what's the antidote? Well, the antidote to spiritual maturity is first to be disciplined. Notice Paul was encouraged by their good discipline and stability, which is why he's hopeful that they won't be deceived. The second part of verse 5 says, Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. These two terms, discipline and stability, are military terms suggesting that the Colossians must not lay back or sit down spiritually. They need to be spiritually alert, on guard. And apparently they were. They had good discipline and stability. In the same way, we here at Ambassador need to stand on guard, ready to defend ourselves against the attack of the enemy. It could come from any direction, from outside, all sorts of different ways. It could come outside, from outside of our church, but it can also come from within. So we need to be on the alert, just like our Savior told us. The key to resisting false teaching is good discipline and stability. Isn't that true for those of you who have been in battle? That the reason a soldier is ready in the heat of battle, in the thick of war, the reason that they're ready to defend themselves against the attack of the enemy is because they first disciplined themselves in training. They've spent months and years in training to be out on that battlefield. And, and so we should not put our guard down in the midst of a battle. We need to be disciplined and stable like the Colossians. Secondly, we need to live out the truth of the Gospel. We could say, we could say it this way, believe and live out the truth of the Gospel in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, verse 6 says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. So you've already received. I'm not trying to get you guys saved here, Paul's saying. 
I want you to live out what you believe. And so at the heart of who we are, at the heart of our reception of Jesus as Lord, is that we will live out what we believe. I mean, if Christ is supreme over all creation, and if Christ is supreme over our redemption, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, then, then we answer to Him. We live out what He's called us to do. Salvation is not solely about being rescued from hell. That's part of it. But it's about submitting to Christ daily, taking up our cross, denying ourselves. Notice we have this command in verse 6, walk in Him. And then in verse 7, we have the basis for the command that Christ has done these things. He's, doing, he's done some work in us. We're rooted and grounded in the faith and He's doing a work in us. So here's what we're supposed to do, verse 6, and the reason we can do it is because we are rooted and grounded in the faith. So notice the four participles that characterize a faithful walk. We are called to do, verse 6, walk in Him. We're called to walk in Christ. So notice the four participles that describe what walking in Christ means. First, verse 7, having been firmly rooted. That's the first one. And then, being built up in Him. The, the ones that end in ING there are your participles that modify the, ver, the, the, the expectation, the command in verse 6. So walk in Him, having been rooted and being built up, and then we could add being established in your faith, and then fourthly, overflowing with gratitude. So those four ideas, four participles, really describe what a faithful walk with Christ looks like. So first, rooted in Christ. Notice this is passive. It's in the passive voice. Having been rooted in Christ. It's not something that you have to redo. Okay? Certainly we need to build on what, we, what we've been founded upon, but, but recognize you've already been founded if you're a Christian, right? You already have been rooted in Christ. You already have been unit, united with Christ. Like a tree. You know, an old tree doesn't need support. It, it's, it's firmly rooted in the ground. It has its, its uh, root system that, goes down, that, that go down deep and wide. It's got this huge, massive trunk. They cannot be unseated. And so what we're talking about here is what, what Christ has done for us in salvation. That's why it's passive. Having been rooted in Christ. The starting point for our union with Christ, the starting point for us walking in Christ that verse 6 requires of us is that first we, that God initiates a work in us. That He roots us in Christ. He, he unites us with Christ. Second image in verse 7 is the second participle that describes what a faithful walk with Christ looks like, and that is that we are built on Christ. And we are built on Christ. Now being built up in Him. Now this is also passive, but notice it's kind of got this present sense, doesn't it? Now being built up in Him. That we are we're rooted, we're set, we're established, but now we're, we're building on that. We don't need additional supports in order to be made right with God. We don't, need, we don't need supports to protect us against the winds and the flood. 
The initial foundation has been laid, but we're supposed to build on that. And the way that we build on it is not in our own strength, but as we are complicit with the Holy Spirit, as the, the Spirit leads us, we follow. We don't resist the Holy Spirit or, or um, cause Him to be, uh, cause him to be uh, frustrated with our, with our disobedience or defiance. So we build on what Christ has already established in us. So rooted in Christ, built on Christ, and then thirdly, established in faith. And, and being established in your faith. I think that being there in the middle of verse 7, the second line of verse 7, being built up, it, it has a twofold aspect. Being built up and being established. So it's this ongoing idea of as we have been instructed, you are continually being established. So you're, you're rooted, you're being built up, and you're continually being established in your faith. And then finally, this results in us our, our overflow in thanksgiving. The, the phrase there is overflowing. Again, another participle describing what a faithful walk with Christ looks like. I mean, do we not, of all people, have reason to be thankful? And, and how often are our lives marked by ungratefulness to God for what He has done? Or grumbling and complaining over the, the lot that God has given to us? And yet, when we take a step back and realize where we were, where we deserve to be, and where we are, and where we're going to be, then, then we have much to be thankful for. In addition to all the other uh, blessings that come along with being in Christ. Not just freedom from an eternal hell. That's definitely something to be thankful for. But, but in addition to that, we have so much more. So, two points of application this morning. Number one, Satan wants to derail you spiritually. Paul's talking to believers here in Colossae saying, I'm telling you this so that you will not be deluded by persuasive argument. And the reality is that Satan wants to derail you spiritually. He wants you to get off the tracks that lead to eternal life. And if there was a threat of deception in Paul's day, we should expect that the same threat will be here in our day. In fact, you can believe and be sure that Satan will use every weapon in his arsenal in order to get you to give up. And when I say you, I'm talking about you as a church, we as a church, to give up. To turn away from Christ. To cling to some other idol. If you're going to guard yourself against being deluded with persuasive argument like verse 4 warns against, you're going to guard yourself against the most powerful creature in the world, Satan, then you need to use every available piece of armor that you have at your disposal to protect yourself from his attacks. Because, as 1 Peter 5.8 says, he is like a prowling lion. He's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. You let your guard down, Satan's ready to attack. And so we need to recognize that the great and dangerous reality of deception. Satan's working to, to come at us, not overtly necessarily. He may do that. Sometimes he attacks in that way. But, but generally speaking, he attacks as an angel of light, doesn't he? So we need to, to guard ourselves. Always be 
secured and, and um, established in the faith by, by continually grounding ourselves in the Word, which is truth. Secondly, there is no better foundation than Christ. So here's the great hope we have. You know, the first point kind of scares us. Satan wants to derail me. He's using every weapon at his disposal to unseat me spiritually. But we have a foundation that's in Christ that cannot be unseated. So don't move from that firm foundation. Don't buy into the lie of, of, of like these false teachers were saying, you need Christ plus something else. Think back to Psalm 1-3. Right? The godly person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does, he prospers. And there's a similar sort of imagery here in Colossians 2. That, that we are like that tree when we're planted in Christ, when we're seated and rooted in Christ. And we're not going to be able to be unseated. Because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and those who pursue Christ will be like that prosperous tree, which is unmoved by the catastrophes of life. Drought cannot take that tree out because he gets its, that tree gets its, its strength from its source planted by the river of water. So it has plenty of life to draw from. Storms aren't going to knock that tree down because it's, it's strong and secure. Its roots are down deep and it's never susceptible to death or fruitlessness. That's what your Christian life is like when you are rooted in Christ. No matter how tough the storm, the leaves don't wither and the tree bears fruit. That doesn't mean every second of every day you're bearing fruit. You know, there will be times when we turn away from Christ for a time and, and yet we'll be drawn back. But, but that fruit bearing will happen. That's the way it is with a, a righteous person. If you firmly plant yourself with the Word of Christ, Word of God who is Christ, as your life-giving source, you don't follow the advice of the wicked, but, but instead follow the advice of the Word of God, as Psalm 1 says. Whatever adversity comes, no matter how hard the winds of temptations blow, you will remain healthy and growing and fruitful because your roots are planted and they reach down deeply. So, if life and strength come from being in Christ, then I'll give you a bonus one here. Thirdly, Pursue Christ as you would pursue hidden treasure. So if there's a reality of deception, and if being in Christ is how we guard ourselves against deception, if, being, uh, if knowing Christ in His Word is how we guard ourselves against deception, then here's a very simple principle or application that we can take today, and that is pursue Christ as you would pursue hidden treasure. Proverbs 2 is one of my favorite passages because it reminds me of the great treasure that I have in the Word of God. That if I pursue wisdom as I would look for a, a treasure chest, then I will understand the ways of the Lord and I will avoid evil. And that promise is for you as well. And Paul is in, encouraging us with a very similar point. That we receive all the treasures and blessings that come from the wisdom of, and knowledge of God as long as we're pursuing Him. And so our job is to recognize the great value that we have in Christ. 
That all the wisdom that you need for life and godliness is found in Christ. It's as if, again, you have access to the only gold mine in the world. All the other mines are full, are full of fool's gold. And so you have access to this one gold mine. And so you need to go nowhere else than the property that you own to find what you're looking for. There's great spiritual strength and assurance that comes from knowing what we possess. Look again at verse 2. The middle of the verse says that they would know all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. There's a difference between possession and awareness of possession, isn't there? How many times do we complain and languish through life as if we're defeated when we have failed to realize that we belong to Christ and He belongs to us? And the challenge for us is to search out all these treasures that we possess. I mean, it's like we are heirs of a huge inheritance, but we never bother to read the will. Well, there's, you know, there's 500 pages and there's just way too much there. I don't really, I don't really want to go through that. Friends, we have the greatest possession that anyone could ever have. And our job is not just to possess Him, but actually to recognize what we have in Him. Treasure Him. Pursue Him. All the wisdom that comes from Christ is available to us. So pursue Christ as you would pursue hidden treasure. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reminder of the reality of the spiritual battle that we're in. It's easy to think that that the believers in the New Testament had little opposition or maybe just periodic opposition, but but as we read through the the letters and and the book of Acts, we're reminded again that that the opposition is ongoing. Satan never tires of attacking us and using his minions and this evil, evil world system and even our own flesh to to war against us. And Lord, if we are blind to those realities, then then we will lose. If we are blind to the spiritual battle that we, we are in, we will easily be unseated. We need to be rooted and grounded in Christ. And we're thankful that you have guaranteed that by virtue of our salvation. And we're thankful for the great treasure that we have in Christ. And we ask for your forgiveness for for often failing to realize what we have in Him and, and complaining and languishing over the difficulties in life and acted, acting as if we are defeated foes. When in fact we are uh, allies of You. We're on Your side. You're on our side, more importantly. And, and we have this great inheritance in Christ. And, and if only we would mine the great treasures that we have in Him, our lives would be full of so much more joy even than we have now. So Lord, help us to pursue wisdom and pursue Christ as we would for hidden treasure and that that we would be able to go through life enjoying um, your gifts and, and enjoying our greatest possession, Christ himself. Thank you for revealing this mystery to us, which was once hidden from the previous ages. And may you help us to, to live in light of it, to... to um, 
to be obedient, to submit ourselves to you, and also to share this news with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.